Let's jump into where, we, uh, where we'll be today in today's text in Genesis chapter 14. Uh, let, let me ask you a question first, though. What do you do when something is just dropped in your lap? I mean, just out of the blue, uh, dropped in your lap. Now, I'm not talking about pieces off your chicken biscuit that you had this morning, or I'm not talking about hot coffee that gets spilled in your lap. We all know what we do in those situations. Uh, or I'm not even talking about uh, if a money bag gets dropped in your, in, in your lap. I mean, that can also become somewhat of a dilemma in what to do. Uh, but what do you do when things get dropped in your lap? You're in a situation and just out of the blue, you're minding your own business, and all of a sudden, boom, there it is. It gets dropped in, and you've got to make a decision. You've got to make a decision about how you respond and what you do next. And honestly, that's a little bit about the situation we find ourselves in in our text today in Genesis chapter 14. And so as a lead up to that, I'll kind of, I'll kind of walk us back up and ramp us back up into what that looks like today. Um, in our long study in Genesis so far, uh, Scripture has led us to Abram. And Abram uh, was called by God out of his country, and he was called to go into this land that he had never been to before. And, and God promised this land to his offspring. And in, and in chapter 12, we see him kind of recovering from his folly that he did in Egypt uh, of his denying, his lying, and falsifying. Come on, denying, lying, and falsifying, because that's what Abram did. He denied that he was married to Sarah, right? He was like, uh, yeah, go on, you want to take her, Pharaoh, uh, go ahead. I, I, so he just went, he was lying and tell the whole truth about who she was. And so he was falsifying his thing just to try to stay alive. He didn't want to die. He didn't want the Pharaoh to kill him. And so he can write those things down because we all do that all the time. We deny, we lie, we falsify uh, from time to time. And so we're like a lot of the biblical characters we see. And, and, but the good thing is that even in the middle of all that, because God loved Abram and God had a plan for Abram, we see that these two words that are very important, but God, but God, yes, but God, because I, I don't think I have that on the screen yet. Okay. Uh, we'll do some technical dip. There we go. But God. So, but God uh, is, is telling us that God intervened. God jumped in the middle of what was going on uh, because God was being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he loved Abram. He had a plan for Abram and he jumped into the middle of him and he rescued him and his wife, Sarah, from the Pharaoh. And if you think about it, if you'll remember back to that story, uh, God called these, caused these boils to come up on their skin. He caused these boils to come up on all the people in the kingdom except for Abram and Sarah. And it, it also it almost harkens forward to Moses whenever he's gonna meet another Pharaoh and they're gonna, hey, let my people go and let my people out of the land of Egypt, that God intervened. This was just like a, a small smidgen of what might be to come, but God was showing his power even back in the middle of Abram and his folly. And so they left Egypt and they were in Egypt and they were in a much better place and much better financially than they were whenever they got there. Last week, we looked into chapter 13, and we saw Abram restored after his repentance. And we even talked about the importance of repentance for you and me. And so uh, when we sin, say this with me, when we sin, yeah, because you're going to sin, you're going to sin, and I'm going to sin. When we sin uh, and we fail and even rebel, See, there we go rhyming again. We sin and fail and rebel. Uh, God is, uh, but the good thing is that we turn to God and he welcomes repenters. God welcomes repenters. He, and we turn to a God who restores repenters. 
He welcomes repenters, he restores repenters, and he continues to use repenters. And that's the good news of the gospel for people like you and me. I love the fact that God will use a jacked up dude like me and jacked up people like you in, his, in accomplishing his purposes, aren't you? I mean, that's a good, good thing. And he does it whenever we became people who will repent over our sin and have sorrow over our sin and confess our sin to God. He is a God who uses people like that. He did it early in the Bible. He did it in the middle parts of the Bible. He did it in the later parts of the Bible and he does it today. And so it's a good thing to know that we serve a God who loves us that way. We get on to chapter 13 and it shows us the conflict between Lot, uh, Lot's herdsmen and Abram's herdsmen. And so they decide we're gonna go our own separate ways and we're gonna do our own thing. Uh, uh, and, and Abram allowed Lot to choose which way he wanted to go first. And, and Lot pitched his tent, the scripture says, as far as Sodom. And then uh, the, we see the scripture says that he renewed, that God renewed his promise to Abraham even in the middle of that. Look in Genesis chapter 13 with me. Verse 14 says this, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you, I will give to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. And so that was the promise that God made to Abram. And, and, and so now due to Abram's generosity, uh, the parting with Lot had been relatively peaceful. I mean, Abram said, hey, I wanna do this peaceful. I don't want there to be a big deal between us. And, and so if you think about where they were back then, the scripture described that their flocks were all pushed together and they were all squashed together. When I think about it, I think about maybe like, uh, um, uh, Black Friday, you know, the day after Thanksgiving and people trying to run in the doors of Walmart to get their free TV or the TV for $99. That's the way I picture Lot's and Abram's uh, herds during that time. They were just squished and squashed together. Uh, but now, because they were gonna go in their own directions, they were creating some more space and things seemingly had some temporary calm around Abram and the life that he was living. And so the scripture tells us that Abram settled in Hebron and, uh, and Lot pitched his tent near Sodom. And, and, and really, Lot didn't have any idea what was going on in Sodom at the time. He didn't, he didn't know for sure what, how wicked of a city uh, that was and all the things that were going on there. But as we'll see in our text today, uh, Sodom was a group of cities that had these kings that were around them and they needed to puff up their chest and they needed to puff their chest out and like be somebody and beat their chest a little bit and show their how strong they were and they were big boys. Uh, and, so, uh, and, and so that's where we find ourselves in our text today. Now, as we get into this, um, I really wanted the Bible app to read this for us today because there's some really difficult names in here uh, and so I was like, I'm just gonna play the Bible app and I'll just let the Bible app read it because they know what they're doing. Uh, but I found out that I couldn't do that. It's copyrighted. And so I'm gonna say it. And so the thing I've learned is you say it and you say it confidently. And how I say it today is the right way. Yeah. Amen? Yeah. Come on. Yeah. All right, so here we go. Genesis uh, chapter 14. Here's what the scripture says. I'll probably read this a little bit the way the Bible app guy sounds, uh, but just because that's the way I've listened to it all week. <laughs> Here's what it says. In the days of Armaphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, 
and Tidal, king of Goyim. These kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Birsha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeb Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had, they had served Chedorlaomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Chedorlaomer and his kings were who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim and Ashtaroth Carnaim and the Zuzim and Ham, the Emim and Shaveh Kiriathim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to in Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazion Tamor. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim with Chedorlaomer, king of Edom, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now, the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled into the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions and went their way. Whew. You're welcome. Thank you. I'm here every Sunday. So these first 12 verses basically describe the landscape in, uh, in and around our central characters, Abram and Lot, because that's really where these, where these chapters and this story is actually centered around. And so international conflict was going on around them. These kings, as you just heard me say all their names, were battling left and forth. And, and Chedorlaomer was the first king to actually make a move. He was like, I'm not going to sit back. I'm going to make my first move. And, and so the route that he took was ironically, uh, as he was going through the land, was ironically somewhat the same as Abram was taking as he actually went through the land. And so the first tribe to fall were the Rephaites. And, and so De Deuteronomy will later tell us that these Rephaites, these people were famous for their height. So think about like it's a, a country full of Shaquille O'Neal's. All right, or if, to bring it close to uh, refuge people, so to, re to make it more like refuge people, think of being invading a country that is a combination between Jason Walgren's height and Matt Seary's brawn, okay? As tall as, as, tall as uh, Jason Walgren and as thick and strong as Matt Seary. That's the people that they actually went in and invaded. So the first strike that they did was at the most intimidating people. Now, uh, I, I love to tell stories about uh, my Uncle Buddy and Big Jim. That was my dad, Jim Benjamin. And, and so I love to tell stories about them because they were always doing some stuff and always keeping us entertained. And, and so Uncle Buddy, especially when he was younger, I mean, he's still this way some, but Uncle Buddy was a fighter. I mean, he was just a guy that he loved to fight when he was young. I mean, he would just go to places and he would just look for people to punch in the face, uh, no matter what. And, and so he always taught me that if you've got a fight, and my dad would say this, if you've got a fight, you need to find the biggest one and you need to pick him out and say, 
boy, I'm sorry, it's just gotta be you, and just pour it on that guy. I mean, just absolutely pour it on him. And, and so that's really kind of what uh, happened here as the, they, they attacked the first and the biggest crowd. They were like, I'm just sorry, it's gotta be you, and they pulled out their brass knuckles and just went to town. Uh, wait, no, that's Uncle Buddy, sorry. Um, uh, but that, that didn't use, they didn't use their brass knuckles then, but they went to battle then and they took out the most intimidating people right away. And who knew whenever Uncle Buddy was telling me these stories that he was just being biblical. You go after the biggest people first. Uncle Buddy. So Chedorlaomer and his band of merry men uh, subdued everyone in the area. The scripture tells us as far as El Paran and covered most of the Sinai Peninsula. And then he turned northward, it says, and he whipped the Amalekites and the Amorites as far as Hazan Tamor, and which is on the western side of the Dead Sea. And so he just, he was going left and right and he was whipping and a whomping and he just went after everybody and was, and was whipping everybody along the way. And, and so then as he gets to the point, as, as he gets fast past those guys, the scripture tells us that there were these five kings that were left at his mercy. And the, the, really the, the text goes on to tell us and some commentators were telling us that there was really no escaping his onslaught. Uh, because they had secured this trading route between these important cities as you kind of study the landscape along the way. And, and, and so it was quite the military achievement for him to actually go through and win the battles like this. The, uh, as they described it, I think of it like shock and awe. Uh, you remember that from the, the Persian Gulf War, shock and awe? That's kind of what they did is they went through and just whipped everybody and they were like, yeah, we the king, we won and we in charge. And so then they were ready for the coup de grace, the Dead Sea kings. And as you can see from the text, that the kings along this way and therefore armies, uh, armies, they just caved. They were like, man, we're out. We're not gonna have a whole lot of chance against these guys. And, and, and so we're just out. And the scripture says that they began to run away. They began to, they, uh, as some were killed, but some were get, began to run. Some fell in these bitumen pits uh, along the way uh, as, they, as they were attacked by these armies. And they fell, the scripture says, uh, they fell and many of them fled to the hill country. Now these bitumen pits that were mentioned in the scripture were a combination of like tar and asphalt. So it was a terrible death. And it's interesting that the scripture would actually stop and tell us a little bit about that. that how, but I think it's wanting to tell us what a terrible situation it was. I mean, it was a hopeless situation that as they were running away, trying to save their own life from dying at the hands of their enemy, that they fell even into a worse death into these bitumen pits. Um, John Calvin wrote about this whenever he said, uh, uh, talking about this very same thing. He said this, I, however, understand them to have exchanged one kind of death for another, as is common in the moment of desperation, as if Moses had to say, the swords of the enemy were so formidable to them that without hesitation, they threw themselves headlong into pits. I mean, how terrible did that situation have to be for them to even either fall in or even just throw themselves into these pits? And then what about Lot? I mean, Lot, the scripture tells us that, that he, I mean, what a strange turn of events for him. And he had chosen this land and he had chosen it because it looked so uh, uh, full of life and full of hope. Uh, and Lot gets caught up in the middle. This text tells us that he gets caught up in the middle of this and gets captured by this and gets taken away. Kent Hughes, uh, who is a commentator on some uh, of this text, 
Uh, he imagines the scene with Lot something like this. Uh, Hughes says, he had greedily chosen the best part of the land and his choice had proven disastrous. So Lot and his possessions were carted off to, to who knows where and, and Lot had had to witness the carnage of war and I'm sure he had, he had witnessed uh, uh, tons of deaths and uh, the agonizing deaths of people he knew and I'm sure he had to see with his own eyes the rape and the pillage of, of women around. That was pretty standard during war during that time is to, to rape women along the way and, and maybe Lot had lost children or loved ones or maybe his daughter was the prize of some king or, or some other uh, uh, countryman along the way that had been invaded. And, and the reality is that Lot's hopes were all but dead. And honestly, so were the people around him. There's just not a lot of hope with all this invasion and all this killing and all this pillaging and all these driving out of our city, all the, all, out of all the cities. There's just not a lot of hope left. And I mean, can you picture the scene? I mean, you've seen this in movies where people are frantically running. Something is after them. They're in the middle of something and, and people are just frantically running left and right. And, and normally it happens in like horror movies. And, and so you see horror movies and people running for their lives or, or maybe even see them in some old terrible Godzilla movies where, where Godzilla comes onto the scene and, and people are running from the big Godzilla or maybe even in these silly zombie shows that Pastor Paul loves to watch. Uh, supposedly people are running from the zombies. Oh, the zombies. Uh, and, and so, you know, these crazy things like that. But, but honestly, but here they're just running. They're running away in hope of finding hope. That's where they find themselves. And, and so then you get on to verse 13 and, and you see what happens in verse 13. Then one who had escaped, so he had escaped where they were. He had escaped actually death. Uh, one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and of Aner. These were the allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And so here's how we like to remember Abram. This is the Abram that we all want to know, right? This is the guy that we want to, uh, that we want to remember. Uh, and honestly, we want people to think of us like this in times of trouble. I mean, I want you to think of me in a good light in time of trouble. And so this is the light that finally we see Abram in. It reminds me a little bit of Clark Kent, you know, in the Superman movies. So I'm a big Superman fan. I think he's the best superhero ever. Um, uh, but in Superman movies, whenever Clark Kent knows about some impending trouble, uh, he kind of stares up in the space and you hear the Superman music. And he starts to pull his shirt apart. I wish I had a Superman shirt on under this shirt. Uh, uh, but he would start to pull his shirt apart and you'd see the big S under his thing and he revealed it. And, and he would reveal always, and I mean always, that he wore his tights under his clothes all the time. I mean, I do too, but you know, that's just my spanks. But anyway, Kidding. Uh, uh, but here's, here's Clark Kent and Superman ready to spring into action because Superman was always on a mission. Superman was always ready to save the day. The day. And here's what Abram was actually ready to do. 
I mean, he had heard that his own kinsman, that Lot had been captured. And Abram fixed his eyes to do something. He said, I've got to do something. I can't leave him in this situation. I've got to find a way in which to rescue Lot. And so he led his trained men. And so you think about this, is that Abram was basically sitting, the scripture tells us that he was, had his people and he was living in his land. And so there was a very specific number of 318 men that Abram had invested his life in. And he had invested his life in training them. I think of the movie, 300, if you've ever seen that movie. And so the, all the training that they do in 300, that's what I kind of envision Abram doing. And he was training them in that way. And they were, I mean, just rigorous training left and right. Who knew what for, but suddenly it was time for Abram and his 318 men to spring into action. So these were his own disciples, uh, own disciples, and then up, up and away. No, that's Superman. Uh, out they went and they went after these guys. Uh, they were in pursuit of these pillaging kings. Now, the truth is, is that Abram could have chosen to do nothing. Right? I mean, he could have chosen to do nothing. I mean, Lot had pitched his tent by his own desires to put it in a specific place and chosen what seemed to be the better of the two places. And Abram could have said, you know what? It's time for you to pay the piper. It's time for you uh, to pay up, buddy. Uh, you deal with your own mess. You wanted it, you gossip, and so it's time for you to just have to pay up. But instead, Abram chose to do the right thing. He chose to do something. He chose to get involved. He chose to take action, and so did his loyal men. Uh, the Hebrew word literally says he drew out 318 men as if you're drawing a sword for war. That, that's the description that the, that the text in the original language wants us to see. So I think back to 300 again, when they would draw those swords, you know, and they would put their shields up and they'd be like, her, her, her. It sounds a lot better with 300 men. It sounds like a dog barking up here or something. But they would draw together and they would have their swords ready and they were ready for anything. They were ready to fight and they were ready to win. And honestly, that's the way that I see Abram and these 318 men uh, during the time. And so here was Abram, a general leading his own army and he was an army who was built to win. And so off they go on this trek, 120 miles toward uh, Dan. That's where they were headed uh, to, 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 to fight this a battle. And so I don't want you to miss this because this is important because we can read through texts like this and we can go, well, it's just more, you know, more narrative, more narrative, more narrative. But remember, what's the Bible all about? Sunday school word? Yeah, Jesus. The Bible's all about Jesus and the stories are all about Jesus. And so the stories are always pointing us to the rescuer, always pointing us to the one who is to come. And so isn't this a lot like Jesus where there's trouble that comes and there's sin in our life and rather than just sitting by and allowing us to live and, and, and just soak and sour in our own sin, Jesus is the one who pursued us, Right? Jesus is the one who came after us. Jesus is the one who, who trekked all along the way uh, to come after us. He came after us. He pursued us. He entered the battle on our behalf. And that's the way Abram did. And it's pointing to the one, the rescuer who was to come. This is, and I'm gonna sidebar here because I think it's important. Men, this is also important for you and me. 
This is important in our marriages because scripture tells us that whenever we talk about marriages, that, that it's a picture of Jesus and the church and how Jesus came after his bride. Jesus also always went to rescue his bride. Uh, uh, the bride is the church. And so I wanna make sure that you and I men specifically live like this, that we're pursuing our bride. We're pursuing and protecting our bride. We are always looking out for her on, on her behalf and for her good. That's mine and your responsibility, man, as people of God, as people of the cross, as people who have been pursued by God ourselves, that our calling is to pursue our bride, our wife, just like Jesus pursued us in the church. Amen? amen. Yeah, turn to your wife and say amen. All right, good work. If you didn't say it, wives, text me. <clears throat> So here's how it played out. Look at what the text says in verse 15. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah near the north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. So Abram planned a sneak attack. That's what he did. He said, I'm gonna figure this out. I've got a plan. I've been planning for this for most of my life as I've been training these dudes. Our first thing is gonna do, we're gonna plan a sneak attack. And so he sent his, uh, he sent his troops in two different directions uh, by night. The Bible says, under the cloak of darkness. And, and the scripture tells us that they attacked. And so swords are flying left and right. And, and it seems like Abram had this well-planned attack that surprised these unsuspecting uh, enemies that he was pursuing. And so Abram and his warrior men pursued them, the scripture tells us, out of the promised land all the way north to Damascus. Uh, and so Moses, whenever he wrote this, he wanted us to see the plans of Moses, uh, that he wanted us to see the plans of Abram and, and the valor of Abram and the, and, the, and the bravery of Abram and these 318 men that he took with him. And so um, uh, it's important that, uh, that we also... Uh, uh, find these things and follow these things and take a look at Abram's life. What a difference a, 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 this picture of Abram is than what he was in Egypt. I mean, he was so courageous in these battles that we see. But the courage was not mustered up because he was pulling up his bootstraps and decided to do better. The courage wasn't because he decided to, to just do better and try harder. We talk about those words here at Refuge a lot. Uh, that was not the plan. But that, that was that many times we think about that. If we'll just do better the next time, if we'll just try harder the next time, then we'll make ourselves a little bit better and we'll do the right thing the next time. Uh, the, but he was so courageous in the battles because this was done by faith. Okay? This was done by faith. Yes, Abram did things. Yes, he trained his army. Yes, he, he planned for, these, for something like this to happen somewhere in the future, but Abram was living by faith. Abram believed God. Remember, we found that last week in, in the text that Abram finally believed what it was that God was telling him. Abram believed God. Abram believed that this land belonged to his offspring. Abram believed that people aren't gonna come in and take this away from me because God is the one who has told me that it's gonna be mine. 
And so by faith, I'm going to believe that. And by faith, I'm going to choose to respond in that way, not by just the circumstances around me, but by faith, I'm going to believe what it was that God had sent, that God had told me. Even if there had been some type of momentary setback, Abram believed that this, that what God had said would actually come to pass. So Abram believed it and then he acted in faith. We, we talk about there's two words here, indicative, he believed it, imperative, this is what he did. So indicative means we believe first, we trust God first, we believe what he said first, we're not, and, and then we act on things. Not we act on things so God will do something for us, but we believe God first. Tracking with me? We believe him and then we do things because we believe him, because he is faithful, because he always responds, because he is always at work. See what I'm saying? That's the difference. We're not trying to trick God into doing anything. We're responding in faith because we believe he will. Amen? Amen. So because we see in Egypt, Abram had distrusted God and shriveled up in the face of opposition, but now we see him living in this abundant trust. We see him living, believing the promises of of God. And so can you see Abram and his band of merry men as they're on their way back and they're probably walking shoulder and shoulder and they're probably, you know, probably singing some chanting songs or something like that. Whatever they did back in Bible days is as they were walking back into their city and um, uh, Kent Hughes, he's a commentator uh, that I was reading and, and he said that... Uh, <clears throat> He remembers Winston Churchill. There's a story about Winston Churchill, uh, his recollection of the people when they learned of their victory in World War II. Uh, Churchill said this, I heard the cheers of the brave people who had borne so much and given all, who had never wavered, who had never lost faith in their country or its destiny, and who could be indulgent to their faults of their servants when the hour of deliverance had come. And according to Churchill, one simple eight-word phrase was now locked into his memory of this historic time. He said it echoed and echoed, repeated by tearful, proud, and exultant Britons who rejoiced in the evidence that they had prevailed. And so Churchill says that someone in the crowd would shout, who won the war? And everybody would roar back, we won the war. Who won the war? We won the war. And so I can almost see this same thing happening with Abram's men as they were just heading back home and, and they were happy about what had happened. Who won the war? We won the war. Who won the war? We won the war. So I can just see them living in the glory and basking in the glory of what had just happened. And so, uh, but many times after monumental successes, we know uh, that there's also a dilemma that usually follows it. And what do you do in the face of success? What do you do when success comes? How do you handle success? Uh, there, uh, I wrote this down for you to see that many who have been stellar in adversity are derailed by success. Many who have been stellar in adversity are derailed by success. And so the question becomes for you and me today, how do you handle success? I mean, how do you respond to adversity? And we'll see how Abram does that next week. We're gonna get into that and see what he does. And in the face of all these victories, in the face of winning in these battles, how does Abram respond? That's the, that's the, that's the balance of our text uh, in Genesis chapter 14. Uh, but from this part of Abram's story, 
I believe that the text begs us to answer a few questions about ourselves. Uh, remember, Abram had the chance to clam up. In the face of adversity, he had the, clam, the, the chance to just be quiet. He had the chance to go up by him, uh, off to himself and go, I'm not part of this. I haven't been drugged into this war. I, I haven't been uh, in this place at all. I, uh, I didn't get punched in the kidneys or anything at all like that, like you guys did. But, uh, but how, how are you going to do this? What, what are you going to do now? Uh, Abram had the chance to just go, I'm out. I'm not participating. But when someone called, whenever someone showed up and asked for his help, Abram stepped in. And so the question becomes for us today, what would you do? What would you do? That's one of my favorite shows on TV that I like to watch. What would you do? And they put people in these situations where they'll be in a restaurant and they hire these actors to come in and, and they're just really rude to one another or they're rude to the staff or, or they make, you know, light of a situation and then they, and these actors, and, you know, they engage the people around the restaurant and, and so they're seeing how people would react and it's interesting uh, to watch what would happen and just as people are about to get out of hand, John Quijones comes walking in with a camera crew and he's like, hey, I'm John Quijones and I'm here and we're, we're filming this show. And, and so they tell them, well, what would you do? And they're like, oh, I've seen that show and I love it. Uh, 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 and so the question becomes, so that's, that's the premise behind the show. But the reality is we have to answer that same question today. What would you do? Here's, here's the question. When faced with uh, obstacles and trials and even very difficult situations that we find ourselves in, or just daily circumstances, what would you do? Here's the first thing, the first question for us. Do you cover your eyes and your ears and your mouth? You remember the, the little monkeys, see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil? Sometimes I think that we do this whenever things come our way. We just do nothing. We don't want to see it. If I don't see it, it really didn't exist. I, I don't want to hear it because I, if I have to hear it, then I've got to do something and I'd rather you just not tell me that. Or I don't really don't want to have an opinion about this because if I'm going to speak my opinion, that's really getting me involved. And so I just, I just cover my evil. I, I just cover my mouth and my ears and, and, and my mouth and my eyes. And so I see nothing. I know nothing. I, 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 I see nothing. I hear nothing. And I speak nothing. And we just don't get involved. Or maybe it's do you confuse the one needing your help? Maybe if someone comes to you with, with really a need, do you just bring more confusion into the situation? If somebody finally comes to you, here's the situation. As a pastor, I know if somebody finally comes to me and really needs to ask me something, they've finally gotten to the end of their, 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 uh, their straw. They're, they're done. They're done. They've they got to find some help. And if they get to me and ask for help, then they really need some help. And honestly, if they come to you and ask for help, they really need some help. They're not just talking. If somebody, especially dudes, but, but I'm sure it's the same thing for you girls too, but I'm not a girl, but I'm sure it is. But especially dudes, if we finally get to somebody and ask for help, then they need help. But many times we just compound the problem at hand. We suddenly asking a multitude of questions and we're using a bunch of words and we're, we're asking multi-layered questions and rather than just helping someone in a minute, we're, making the, we're compounding the problem that they even have on their own. We're not finding solutions, we're creating more of a problem. 
Or maybe you cause more issues. Maybe, you, no, I'm sorry, I, I skipped one. Maybe you compound the problem in hand. Do you heap more condemnation on the person? Do you just add more to their plate? Do you delay your help because you, you'd rather speak and talk more about it than actually help somebody? Or maybe you just cause more issues. Do you treat the person the way they wanna be treated? Do you treat them like a stranger? Do you question their motives, why they're coming to you now, why they need your help, what it is? Do you give them 50 questions about what it is that you want? That's not what we saw Abram doing. He sprung into action. But do you just cause more issues as people choose to come from you? Or do you call for backup? And I laid this as gossip. Do you call for backup? And what that means is you're just gonna call, someone's come to you. And rather than you dealing with the situation, you call more people in. Or I just say you like to talk about it with more people. Somebody's brought an issue to your plate and it's a real thing that, that, that sovereignly God has brought you into the situation. And rather than dealing with the situation or helping in the situation, rather than putting a fire out in the situation, you bring more people in. You wanna talk to every Tom, Dick, and Harry along the way. You feel the need to expose the person to more people for whatever reason because it makes you feel better? Do you disguise what it is that people have brought you under the guise of we'll pray for them? If you're a church person, you've probably done it. Only knowing that when you do that, you just want to gossip about them. Do you unnecessarily involve people that in no way will ever help do you just want to talk about the situation? Or, rather than doing it this way, or these multitudes of ways, do you do this? Do you conjure up your training? Do you respond with the God-given abilities that God has given you? Do you take what the things that God has given you, the experiences that God has given you, the abilities and the training for the years that God has trained you for years as specifically given to you in a situation, do you use that training to help in the situation? Do you, or do you hoard all that training? Do you hoard all that knowledge and you use it simply for yourself and your family and your small band of loved ones and you don't ever share it with other people? Or do you do like Abram, and at the first sign of need, you spring into action. The training that you had, the discipling that you've had, you spring into action on behalf of somebody else. Do you cast your character on the Lord? Here's what we know. This is a situation that Abram didn't want to find himself in, but Abram had, that he had trusted God we see that in the previous chapters before we get uh, into Genesis chapter 14 today. The scripture says that he believed the word of the Lord, that he believed that God had given him a future in the land, and he believed that God had placed him in this land for a specific purpose. And so he didn't hesitate whenever he found himself in this situation. He rose into action on behalf of somebody else, just like God had done for him. Remember with Pharaoh? 
Remember with Pharaoh and he needed help in getting him out of that bad situation that he was in, that God responded right away and he got him out of the situation. He caused those boils or whatever those things were to come up on Pharaoh and his family and the people in the land and he, and he rescued uh, Abram from Pharaoh. So just like God had responded on Abram's behalf, Abram chose to respond on someone else's behalf. He defended the weak around him. And then lastly, do you carry out the mission? See, God had called Abram out of Ur, out of, the, out of Ur of the Chaldeans and, and, and out of darkness, literally out of darkness. There was no reason, there was no merit on Abram's behalf whenever God chose to call him to be the father of the faith. To, to, to be to planting and say, and God says, I'm gonna make a people out of you and, and to be the father of the faith. And, and all along the way that Abram would be and will be faced with many opportunities to reflect and, and to make a decision about opportunities that would come his way. And he would either respond by faith or he would respond by fear. And those are the two places that Abram would find himself in, that he had to respond in one of those two ways, no matter what those situations might come. And honestly, you and I get those same kind of opportunities. We get to respond in faith or we get to respond in fear. We can respond in fear where we just hole up in our own little world and we live in our own little comfort zone and, and we can respond with our own conveniences and, and we can just hole up there until the Lord comes again. We can live that way if that's the way we wanna live or we can live by faith on mission. We can respond to the needs of others. Say respond. Yeah, we can respond to the needs of others whenever they come around. They may be something that you've known for a long time or they may come out of the blue just like they did to Abram. And we can respond to the needs of others or we can rise up, say rise up. Yeah, we can rise up in an occasion whenever it comes. We can rise up uh, as our lives intersect with others and the need comes whenever they ask us to intervene on their behalf. We can rise up and, and face the challenges that are ahead. Or, and we can represent, say represent. represent. Say it with some attitude. Represent. We can represent our king. We get the opportunity to represent our king. Look, people of God don't sit around and hold themselves up in their own little world. It's just not who we're called to be. There's nothing in the scripture that teaches us. And we don't, again, we don't get out and do things for God's approval. Uh, Abram didn't do this for God's approval, but from God's approval. We've already talked about this, but this is so important that Abram responded because he knew that God already loved him. He knew uh, that, that God was his protector, that God was with him and God had made a promise to him. And you and I get that same opportunity to respond that way today. We are missionaries sent out into the world so that our lives reflect that of being rescued by our King. So that our love for people will show to people around the world that there's something different about you and me. The best testimony about Abram who he was and really who you and I are is the love that we have for God and the love we have for one another and the care that we show for one another. That's the best testimony that we have for who we are. My hope for your life and for my life is, is by the way that we live and the way that we respond to situations that come along our way, 
The way, the situations that life thrusts on us, whenever we're kind of minding our own, but just like Abram, somehow is minding his own business and life thrusts a situation on us or into us or right in the middle of where we are. That our life, how we respond, our lives demand an answer. That people around us can see that our lives demand an answer. There's something different about them, the way they responded, the way they handled the situation. That's not the way that normal people uh, in this world handle a situation. I'm expecting just the way that everybody along the way handles it, but this person handled it differently, and your life, because of the way you respond, demands an answer, where that answer has to be, I belong to the king. I belong to Jesus. May my life and your life reflect that wherever we go. Let me pray for us.